have one more week after this week. Can you all believe it? I mean, where did the time go? I'm, it just went by really, really, really fast. But I hope you've enjoyed this study as much as I have. I've really had fun with it. It's been, I mean, it's a dark book, but that sounds kind of an oxymoron. It's been fun when it's so dark, but it has been fun. So anyway, let's pray, shall we? God, we just come before you this morning, and I, I, I am just so thankful for you and for the way that you work in our lives. And, um, you know, as I was just thinking back to something that, that Ryan Vincent said last week when we were looking at Samson, that, you know, there was just so little redeeming about Samson. So we just really had to look and search for why you include him in, in Hebrews 11, and yet, um, why do you include us? Why do you use us? I, I know my own heart. People see my veneer, and they, they see one aspect of me, but I, you and I know what's in, in my heart and the sin that is there and the wickedness that is there. And, and it, it humbles me that you would use me at all. And sometimes it just downright frightens me. But um, I thank you. I thank you, Father, that you are so loving and so patient and so compassionate to us and that when we are faithless, you remain faithful. That just boggles my mind, and it boggles my mind how you can take such broken people and carry out your plans and your purposes. Um, truly, you are great, and you are sovereign, and it's, um, we can rest in that, and I do rest in that, and I just pray that everybody in here will as well, and that those that are struggling with God's sovereignty would just have their hearts and their minds open to um, the truth and the comfort of this truth about who you are and that they would find peace and rest in knowing that you have us. You've got our back. You've got us in your hand. Even when we can't see it, you are there and you are working. And we just thank you for that. We thank you for this study and we thank you for the time we've been able to spend in Judges and to be able to see a bigger picture of who you are and how you've been working out your plan of redemption throughout history. Father, bless our time now. Help us to, to glean the lessons that you want us to glean from Micah and Levi and the priest and the, the people of Dan. Um, just, just be a guard over our time now. We thank you and we praise you in your son's name. Amen. Okay, we are in 17 and 18. We are in the last section of the book of Judges. And if we kind of just look at the book of Judges and think back. If you remember when we first started in chapter 1, beginning in chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 6, was kind of a double introduction where it repeated itself a little bit and prepped us for what was going to happen through the rest of the book. And then from 3-7 on to chapter 16 is where we had all the judges presented and the events surrounding them. And, of course, that one story in there of, of Abimelech making, you know, becoming king, not a king that God appointed, but a king that man appointed. And we saw the folly of that and how that did not go well at all. But we've ended, we ended with Samson. We saw that cycle of sin. Where the people sinned, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and what was evil is they went after other gods. It wasn't necessarily that they were committing great acts of immorality, but they went after other gods. That's how God defined the evil. God would sell them into the hands of an of a oppressor, of one of their enemies. They would be oppressed under the uh, oppression, under the difficulties of that. They would cry out to God. 
rarely in repentance. I think one time did we see them repent, did we? But God in his loving kindness and compassion for his people intervened and raised up a judge, a deliverer for them, delivered them. They had a period of, the land had a period of rest. That judge ruled for a period of time. And then we would see the cycle start again. But if you stuck with us, you know that the cycle wasn't really a cycle, but a downward spiral where it got a little worse and a little worse and a little worse. So now we come to the last section of the book, which is like, whereas the first section was a double intro, this is a double closing. So in 17 and 18, we have a story that's related to each other. And then next week, our last week, 19 uh, through 21, is all related to each other, these final, this double ending. So let's start unpacking these, these two chapters. Who are the main characters? Who's the main characters in chapter 17? Let's just do chapter 17. Micah. Micah and his mom. Good old mom. And who else? And a Levite. Yeah. Is that funny to you? <laughs> That's okay. She's laughing at me because I said Micah and his mommy. Okay. <laughs> what does Micah do? What does he do? He stole his mother's money. Eleven was eleven hundred pieces of silver. What motivates him to give it back? She issues a curse, and he gets a little scared because he doesn't want to be cursed, does he? So he fesses up, and he gives the money back. And what is her response? Good mother that she is. She just is so happy that he has done this and praises him and then decides, well, we'll dedicate some of this. It says to the Lord, doesn't it? But what else? Idols, yes. So they take some of the money. They don't take all of it, do they? 1,100 pieces and they take 200. And Micah, what, what all does he do? It's dedicated to the Lord for her son, but they make what? They make a shrine, they make a carved image, they make a metal image don't they? What else does he do? Does he act like a Levite himself? Who does he appoint a priest? His son. He gets his son and makes his son a priest. Is, is this the account where he also makes, a, makes an ephod? Okay, so he has a shrine, an ephod, a metal image, a carved image, and he ordains one of his sons as, as a priest, doesn't he? And sets all this up. So essentially, well, let's go on a little bit. So he sets up this shrine in his home. What's wrong with that? <laughs> what is it wrong? <laughs> it's what? Everything. Everything? Why is it wrong? The first two what? Well, to make no other gods, to make no graven images. 
Okay, well, he breaks a lot of the, he and his mom both break a lot of the Ten Commandments, don't they? I mean, they, they, he lies, he steals, he's making a false god, he's worshiping, he's made a graven image, which they are not to do. I mean, the list goes down the line, what they're guilty of doing as far as breaking God's law. But as far as setting up the shrine in his own house, what, is, what did God's word clearly commanded? I gave you Deuteronomy 12, and what did Deuteronomy 12 say? Worship what, Anita? You worship where I tell you. Yes. Not only that, I want you to go in. This is before they're going into the land. I want you to go in and destroy all of these high places, destroy all the images, tear down their altars, get rid of every evidence of it completely, which we know we started that at the very beginning. They didn't do this, did they? They absolutely didn't do it. But it's clearly said, he says, very clearly says, you will, wor you will not worship the Lord your God in that way, in exactly the way they're doing it. Yeah, Lynn? shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. And my question was, what? Were they still thinking, building those altars and those idols and thinking they were worshiping Yahweh? Answer that question. What, what, is, what does Micah think he's doing? Well, yeah, because look, look at what, look at, here's what he does. If I just kind of have a little pot here, and he's, he's making up his, here's his worship. So he's going to take some elements of God that God has ordained, right? And what are those? <coughs> Not much, but. What, is, what does he take? What does he kind of take from the Hebrew, from God's ordained manner of worship, and pour in here? Well, he, yeah, a priest, wrong priest, but he, but he has a priest, and he has an ephod, and is he kind of do, he's doing it for God, isn't he? He says he is. Okay, doing it for the Lord. So. I'm going to take these things, I'm going to pour them in my worship pot. And then what else does he do? What else does he put in there? The idols. The carved image and the metal image. So I'll pour those in. And he kind of gets the idea a little bit on both sides of there needs to be a place, you know, because God had ordained a place, a particular place where he would be, where you would set up the um, offerings, the, where they'd bring their burnt offerings, their sacrifices, where they would meet with him, where they would worship him, which, by the way, where was it at this point in time? It was at Shiloh. At this point in time, later it'll be at Jerusalem, but right now it's, it's at Shiloh. Although that's not what he's putting in the pot, but he does put in, put in a place and his own priest. So I'm going to put all this in, I'm going to mix it up, and here's my method of worship. Do you see what he's doing? I never thought of it as anything but black and white. 
But that's what they've been doing all along. Do, that's in every single cycle that we've seen. Isn't that what they're doing? Each one, it's a, I'm going to cover my bases. I'm not giving up Yahweh. I haven't totally abandoned him. I haven't walked away from him. But I'm going to add to all these other gods. I'm going to cover my bases because I see the Canaanites being blessed by their Baals and their Asherah and these gods that um, provide fertility and crops and rain and all of these things. So I'll just combine all of it together. And that's what they've been doing. And that's what Micah's doing. And this is what, go ahead, Nelda. Because who do they cry? It's safe for them to go ahead. Exactly. Cover it. Who do they who do they call out to when they really get in trouble? Yeah. They don't call out to Baal or Asherah or Dagon. They call out to Yahweh. Because ultimately they know he's the only one that can really deliver me. I know it sounds crazy, but it, we'll talk about it in a little bit. We do the same thing. We just do it differently. The all paths lead to the same God. Yes. Here's a word you can impress your friends with and drop it in on them. That's what they're guilty of, syncretism. Syncretism. I'm going I'm to take all these things and combine them together to come up with my own manufactured form of worship and approaching God and make sure all my bases are covered. That's, that's what they've been doing throughout Judges. And that's what you see Micah doing. I'll take a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here, and pour it all in the pot, mix it up, and out comes my cake that is of my own doing, and I'm going to feel really good about it. And he feels pretty good about it, doesn't he? Yeah. Questions, comments? I think it's funny how we say phrases like, um, Christians say it all the time, knock on wood. <laughs> I, just, I don't know what that, I mean, I, I know where that came from, but I think that's funny. Or, you make a statement, and I think a lot of this comes from the, the bad preaching of prosperity gospel preachers, uh -huh. but this what you say will happen, uh -huh. like that's magic. Uh -huh. Like I would even argue black magic. Uh -huh. so I'm not talking about having like deeply negative thoughts that aren't going to influence you and are inappropriate, but I'm talking about you just make a comment. Hey, by the way, should this happen? Oh, don't say it, because if you say it somehow, like that truly lies, that whole concept lies in the magic arts about the words that we use and how, and then we misuse biblical texts about the power of words to kind of line up with our magic. Mm -hmm. So all of that is, is superstition mm -hmm. and it is deeply unchristian. Yeah. It gets into every, every single one of us, mm -hmm. I think has a little bit of that. And we're trying, in, in my quest, I think what I'm trying to find is how can I control my circumstances? And God becomes one of the vehicles to control my circumstances. 
right? Mm -hmm. But what I really want is control, whether it's knock on wood, whether it's whatever, and that's where syncretism comes from, is my quest for control. Mm -hmm. I, I totally agree. Yeah, totally agree. In fact, I'm going to put that up there. It's, it's a quest for control. So after Micah, oh, who comes along then next to add into the pot? A Levite from Bethlehem, Judah should, what's wrong with that right there? This is where you, this is why I have you look for geographical places and say, pay attention to them. And I gave you the answer without you having to go look for it. What's wrong? What's, what's wrong in this picture when we say a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah? It's not one of their assigned cities. When the allotments were given, when Joshua gave the allotments of land, but when they went into Canaan, the Levites did not have land. They were not to have land. They did not have a specific territory. But they had cities in which they were assigned to live. And they were to be provided for by the people. That's how they made their living. They, didn't, they might have some, I think they might have had some crops and stuff on, their, on the little allotted areas. But they were provided for through the temple sacrifices and by the people that, that lived in those cities. So he wasn't even, in, had, wasn't even living in a city he was supposed to have been living in. And we don't really know why. You know, some people think, well, because he was just being disobedient, and others because um, the people weren't, you know, in the depraved position that the people were in, they weren't providing for him. So he's just trying to, to make a living. But he comes along, and what's Micah do? He seizes the opportunity, doesn't he? And offers him what? Money, clothes, and a living. Place to live, food and shelter. So 10 pieces of silver, some clothes, and um, a place to live. And Jim, isn't this where that famous sermon that you really like, doesn't he get it from this? 10, ten shekels in a shirt? Yeah, you can, you can listen to it online. You can also read the whole transcript online. It's been transcribed, and it's on this particular passage. So he adds to his, his pot now a real priest, not his son, but a Levite. Pays for him, buys him off. What do you learn about this? You, you know, we learned that this Levite is from Bethlehem, Judah. What else, do you, what else do you see about him? I basically just told you. <laughs> he can be bought. Yes, he can be bought. And he's going to be Micah's personal priest. Is that what a priest's supposed to do? No, they were, they were designated to serve the people, all of the people, not just in a personal household. So we, we kind of see, again, the state of what the theme of these chapters are. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. So we see a real example of this with Micah and with the Levite. So after he gets, Micah gets this all set up and makes a pronouncement at the end of chapter 17, what does he say? It's very revealing about him. OK. 
okay, now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite. I have the real deal now, the real thing in my house. So what does this statement and all that Micah has done reveal about him and reveal about this situation? We've talked a little bit about it, but now let's go a little more in depth and add some pieces to this. Okay, who said that? It's all for show. So it's quest for control, isn't it? It's for show. What did you say, Tony? Well, he doesn't understand who God is or the nature of God. He doesn't understand. Okay. And what doesn't he understand? That you can't bribe him. Okay, that you cannot bribe him, that he cannot be controlled, that he cannot be bought. Okay? What else? Okay, and that kind of goes along with control, doesn't it? So I want to control my world. I want my backup insurance for anything that might happen and might go on. And he's also kind of his genie in a pot, isn't he? <coughs> kind of got my genie in the, in the, little, the little container. What else? Kind of ritual? Yeah. Rituals? He's coloring outside the lines. It's like coloring with what we're supposed to be doing, which was told to us by Moses. And I'm just going to make this a little bit like I want it. Well, he's, pick, he's, he's taking some of the rituals. So I've got a shrine, and I've got a priest, and I've got a form of worship, but he's picking and choosing what he wants from that. So if I'm choosing what I want, what am I discarding? You see the flip side? He's choosing what he doesn't want. Do you see what? I mean, it, it is going back to he doesn't understand God, but maybe he does understand. Maybe he does, but he just says, I don't like that aspect of God. That's not the God. We hear this all the time, too. That's not the, that, I, that's not the God I serve. That's not the God I know. Or I just don't believe God would ever do that. That's not the God I read about. Don't we do that? Isn't that what our society is doing? So, so what he's doing is, is he's picking and choosing the rituals. He's picking and choosing the aspects of who God is that he wants. And I'll just discard what I don't want. He is making a God of convenience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. God is a means to an end. Do you see that? He, he's convenient and a means to an end. And what is the end? He's justifying his actions. He's justifying his actions. It puts him in control. It puts him in control. What's the means to the end? What, what does he say he want? Prosper. Prosper. Yeah. So I want to be happy, and I want to be prosperous, and I want to have a good income, and I want my crops to be good, and my kids to be healthy. So there, it's, God is a means to that end. 
and it's selfish means. It's me, 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 my comfort, my wants, my desires, and what will be best for me and my family. Yes, it is. <laughs> it, it is. It, uh, that would be a good title for this, My Best Life Now. I want my best life now, and I want to pick and choose those aspects of God and the rituals of God that I think will be the genie in the pot to get me that in my life. Does this all sound, it sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Kind of nothing new under the sun? Yeah. Other thoughts? You know, I, I think that I, I totally agree. Okay, but you're going to disagree? No. But here's the, here's the flip, I think, that as Christians, we got to make sure. I, I deal with people all the time, and I, I probably at some level, when I was less mature, mm -hmm. wrestled with this. Mm -hmm. So then God doesn't want my life to be good. So then God doesn't want me to prosper. So then God doesn't want it. And that's not true either. It's like there are these two negative extremes. And so I, I meet people all the time that are going, yeah, so if you're prospering, then it must be. Or they don't say anything and feel guilty for prospering. Instead of recognizing that, again, you're missing the point. It's that neither in poverty nor riches do we find spirituality. And do we find the blessings of God only. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's, 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 let's, I, I totally underline what you're saying. I meet so many people who then try to reverse engineer this to a, the other, to, to what they think would be the right conclusion, which is, so if I, I mean, pastors who do this, and I really like Sunnybrook, I really feel like I'm being used here, so obviously this isn't where God wants me. What? What? Why would you, well, because, like, I'm happy and I'm content. And if I'm content in the Lord, then that's really not what God wants. Like, I feel like I'm being selfish because things are, and I'm going, okay, no, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. There's actually something that's better than you prospering in X way. And there's actually something more important than you not prospering. There is a, a faithful piece which then entrusts to the Lord how it works out. Um, and so my, some of my favorite mentors in my life have gone to situations and said, hey, listen, if this works out, great. If this crashes and burns, great. Mm -hmm. I just know I'm supposed to be here. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of what I have tried to model my own life after, is that, mm -hmm. like, I don't know if this is going to work or not. I just know this is what God wants me to do. Well, it, Does that make sense? Yes. So don't, so don't don't hinge on, man, it worked out, so it's God, or it didn't work out, so it isn't God. It may still have been God, and it didn't work out. I'd be really careful putting periods. Well, you have to define what prosper is. Yeah. I mean, I, that's what I hear you saying, Jim, is that we, didn't, we have to define what prospering is, yeah. and we too often define it by a definition of the world, or what you're saying is, well, then I'll do the antithesis of that and say yeah. that's prospering, but neither one of those yeah. is right. The, uh, yeah. The, yeah. Opposite, the opposite just goes to the other end of the extreme. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So Jesus does say, blessed are the poor, and woe to you who are rich. Okay? Mm -hmm. But maybe... It doesn't mean the only blessing you can get is to be poor, and all the rich are condemned. No. Right? So you, mm -hmm. it's, it's we read too far into the text mm -hmm. instead of looking at the full picture of it. Mm -hmm. And it's, to me, it's literally trusting the Lord's blessing no matter what. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in the second hour. But, yeah. But I, I think it's, like I said, I, to, I don't want to argue with anything yeah. No, uh, you're just adding a new layer. Let's be careful that when we say that, we go, yeah, that's bad. Yeah. The good is not going completely opposite. 
right. the good is, is going towards God, not going towards the antennas. Right, right. Well, and I'm going to repeat myself a little bit, Mary. It begs us asking what does prosper mean? And I think we can gather from the text what he thinks prosper means. Yeah. To be our own God. Yeah. To be like him. And he is being like him. That is an exercise of that um, sin in that I will fashion him the way I think he should be fashioned. And I will choose what attributes and what rituals and what practices I want to do, and I'll discard the others. I'll set it up on my terms. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, one little thing I had written down here from Tim Keller I think um, he just says it well, so I'll just read it. He says, the goal of true faith is to give God access to your heart so he can get you to do what he wants to do. That the gospel faith and faith's purpose is your heart serves God, not God serves you. Do you see the difference? So what Micah, what, what Micah and the people are doing here is I want God to serve me, not I want him to get into my heart so that I serve him. That, that's the, the antithesis of what's happening here. Do you all see that? Other questions, comments before we move on? I, I think it's times like this, though, Nancy, mm-hmm. that we literally, and I guess we can't do it right this second, mm-hmm. spend some time asking like, where we are tempted in this area. Like, Instead of being a problem in judges, or instead of being a problem across the street or at another church, like this is something we all need to come to grips with because we all do this in yeah, some way. We do. And so, to literally say, like, where do I believe that I can somehow control or manipulate the blessings of God, mm-hmm. or where do I actually, where am I looking for within the prosperity or within the poverty, like a, a, a greater peace or an understanding, mm-hmm. and. When we begin to notice those things in ourselves, I think that we can begin to clear up that and we can focus more on, truly, on Christ mm-hmm. and then God's lot for us, mm-hmm. which, by the way, may, may be for many of us, poverty, which may be for many of us, prosperity, well. which may be for most of us, middle class, <coughs> right? Mm-hmm. And But whatever circumstances that we find ourselves in, which is the biblical, maybe have a kind of overarching, Mm-hmm. allegiance and dedication and a trust mm-hmm. to use what God has given us for his purposes mm-hmm. instead of manipulating them for all. Well, and that was going to be my next question, is how do we do this? Can you all think of examples? How, do we, how are we guilty of doing this? Because I agree with Jim. We are guilty of it. If we're really honest with ourselves, we're very guilty of it, and we do it all the time. See, this concerned me because I thought you get so... Whether we like it or not, 
don't want to be politically correct and not push things and make because I think we're all cuckoo anyway, the media and stuff. And I just wondered how much we in our own hearts just justify or Because we've been so culturally conditioned. What happened last week with Samson? They were so enmeshed in the culture, they were so culturally conditioned that they didn't even cry out from the, under the oppression. And instead, the men of Judah, when the Philistines come and, and mess with them, they blame Samson, hand Samson over because Samson's upsetting the apple cart. And, and, but what is God doing through this, the, the whole story of Samson? What is God doing? He's trying to upset the apple cart. He's using Samson's lust and his weaknesses to cause conflict between the Philistines so the people will wake up and see these are not your friends, these are your enemies that you need to, to wipe out. And you need to be understanding that you're under oppression. But they weren't even crying out to the Lord. So I like what you said, Lynn. And it does make me wonder where, because we, we are inundated more than they were because we have media hitting us. Everywhere we go, you cannot avoid it. You cannot have a TV in your home, but there's billboards, and there's signs, and there's, there's slogans, and, we, and we're inundated with that. So the culture seeps in and can condition us, and we didn't even know that it conditioned us. Well, the part that scares me the most is mm -hmm. that when you look at the text, and again, I don't want to, it's a little bit of what I want to talk about, um, it's easy for me also to recognize the billboards and culture, Hollywood, New York, Washington, right? Yeah. So that's easy for me to recognize. But what am I not recognizing? Well, but the text seems to describe that it is most likely your priest that's the problem. Right? Like and the leaders, and, and the, the tribal leaders, leaders exactly. that we're going to so look at. It's not so much, I mean, if it were easy, I mean, Washington and New York City and, and L.A. are actually kind of easy for me to recognize how they polluted the church. But what I don't, what I fail to recognize is that maybe it's already polluted. Like I already got like a carved image and an ephod. And I've already got a hired priest. And so that, that's what the ten shekels on a shirt will help you see if you ever get a chance to listen to that sermon. Um, bear with the first half and then buckle up for the second half of the sermon. But when you, when you deal with that, all of a sudden, instead of it just being those three distinct areas, all of a sudden, I've got to go, wow, no, this actually is my, and when I say my priest, I'm talking about, this is my, this is my church that has adopted these ideas. This is, my, this is my family that has adopted a way of worship and a way of honoring God and a way of expecting God, and that one hurts. That one really, really, really cuts to my very, very core. So. Yeah. Can you think of examples of that, more specific? Well, I mean, or you want to do that second hour? Yeah, I'm going to do Okay, hour. okay. Can anybody else, do you have some thoughts on that? Examples? I think we're such a work and reward culture. I mean, we're probably even more than we in our culture. That we think we do things and we get rewards. And so we transfer that over to our religion, our faith. You uh -huh. know, if we come to church every Sunday, we're very active, we do all these things, everything. Then when we pray, we have a better chance. We have a better chance because we were serving him. Uh, yes. We have a better chance of his answering us. We, yeah. we transfer, we're not careful that we're rewarded to our spiritual. Uh, oh, yeah. I've taught, I've taught Bible study all these years. By golly, I deserve whatever. Right? 
Yeah, or something goes wrong in our lives and we say, why is this happening to me? Because I did this and this and this and this and this. Why are you allowing this to happen to me when I have been being obedient? So we don't understand God sometimes either. Or we forget. We don't understand him and, and or we forget. And or it's so hard, we just kind of choose to put that off to the side for a minute because we're, we're so engulfed in the waves of what's happening to us. Yeah. Yeah. What did Jesus do wrong to suffer so? Nothing. Be very careful. Yeah, Lynn. Tithes and offerings. Yeah, I give my money so God should bless me. Mm -hmm. It's easy to fall into into it. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Can you think of other ways? I think that's worth pondering. I think that's worth, in, in, in your time with the Lord, just saying, just sitting before Him and listening. Where am I doing this? Reveal it to me where it's hidden and where I'm doing this so that you can repent and move forward. And I think it's, there, there just needs to be a periodic kind of touch base with the Lord on that one because it does creep in very insidiously and it's, it's hard, sometimes hard to recognize that that's what we're doing. And he suffered a lot. He did. He did. But he prospered a lot as well. Yeah. I mean, not being materially made, but... He prospered spiritually. See, we need to put a greater value on that okay. than, than what the world has to offer. The world's prospering. But spiritual prospering. You were kind of saying that a little bit ago, weren't you, Jim? Well, it's interesting because that Philippians, that's Philippians 4, one of my favorite texts. Uh-huh. 413 is the middle of that, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But even when he's talking about there, I know it is have plenty and I know it is to be long. That plenty, I, I don't think it means he was Bill Gates rich. Okay? But definitely, he, was, he wasn't talking plenty prayer. He was talking plenty like I got more than I need. I got more, I got more food than I need. I got more stuff than I need. I got more. He's talking physical things there. So, yes, he's rich spiritually. Mm-hmm. But there's also in that context, I know what it is to have want, and we don't go, oh, yeah, want spirit. No, want physically. Mm-hmm. And he knows what it's like to have plenty physically. And he's like, yeah, either way, good. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, yeah, that is... Uh, Profound. That, yeah, that is mature. That is deep. That's very mature. That is very deep. Mm-hmm. Okay, next chapter. Dan, people of Dan show up. What are Dan, what's Dan doing? What are the people of Dan doing? They're looking for themselves an inheritance because they, where are they living? Do they have an inheritance? Were they given an inheritance? They were given an allotment of land. If you look on a map of, if you look on a map of Israel, 
kind of over near, near the Mediterranean, there was an area. If you look in your Bible maps in the back, you can probably find a map and you can see what their allotment was. But what, but what happened? They what? We saw in the beginning of the Judges, they were unable to conquer it. The Amorites were there. They, what did the Amorites do? Yep, forced them on up into the hill country and wouldn't, wouldn't even let them come down in the plain. So they weren't unsuccessful at possessing and driving, uh, possessing their piece of property that was allotted to them and driving out the Amorites. So now here they come. Well, let's, let's look for a place. We, we really don't have an inheritance. They do, but they're not living in it. And let's go, let's go look for a place. So what do you learn about them and what they do? Who do they scout out? Yeah, they did. That's a good description. Because how are they described? Unsuspecting. They don't even, they're just. They don't quiet. They don't, there's some little Laotians in the mountains. I mean, they're like, yeah. the Tibetan monks sitting up there, China hanging and like, kids in the mountains. Yeah. They're just minding their business. Look, look how it describes them. They're, they're living in security. They're living, they're uh, Sidonians, they're just living after the manner of that. They're quiet, they don't lack anything. They're wealth, they have good wealth, they have good land. They don't have any dealings with anybody. They've got a nice spacious area, minding their business, living quite some distance apparently from their people. So they're defenseless. And this is who Dan scouts out. What do they do? They send five scouts out and they come back and say we found it this is an easy take let's go get it right but what do they see along the way who do they encounter micah who's at micah's the traveling levite exactly and what do they decide they want i want a priest and how do they get him I'll make you a better deal. Here's a better deal. You can be a priest to just this one household or to the whole tribe. And does the Levite go for that? Oh, sure. Yes, he does. And, and what else do they do at, when they're at Micah's house? They take all the gods, don't they? How do they do that? They've got, what, 600 men, and they guard the gate, and they kind of hang on to the, the priest at first says, what are you doing? You can't do that. But he doesn't protest very long because he gets a better deal. And they take all the gods and, and, and go off and abscond with them. And what is Micah's re- Micah comes after him, doesn't he? What does he say? What does it reveal about him? Further reveals what he's done over here. He's weak. He's weak. He can't come up against all these, these people of Dan. He's outnumbered, and he knows he's outnumbered. But, but specifically, what, what does he say? Yeah. You, I don't have anything left. You've taken everything, and I, ha- I don't have anything left 
So what does that speak to you about Micah? What does that reveal about him? It what, Valerie? His idols are more Yeah, yeah. I mean, it shows kind of that it, it's 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 tragic that he. Um, what's tragic is, and it's a contradiction, is these are his man-made gods for one that are being taken away from him. Do you see the irony in that? That these gods are so impotent that what, Brenda? By man. By man. They're man-made by man, and they're taken away by man, and yet he has this faith in them that they will make a provision for him. Do you see, do you see kind of the insanity of all of that? And what do I have left? I don't have anything left. You've taken my idols, and you've taken my priest, and you've taken my ephod, and I have nothing left, and now I'm, you can just hear him, now I won't prosper. But that is just insanity, that he thinks those gods are going to make that provision for him. Do you all see that? Mm -hmm. So what does Dan do to this poor little people? The quiet, unsuspecting people. Well, first of all, do, is this the account, or am I getting mixed up with next week? Do they ask the priests? They, they did. They did, don't they? On their way through the first time. On their way through the first time, they want a blessing for what they're about to do, and they ask the priests, well, is God with us, and what's he say? Okay, is that the Lord speaking? No, it's the priest speaking. What, were you going to say no? No? <laughs> but it's not. But it's not completely wrong, because look at look at how he says it. He's a little ambiguous. Look what he says, in verse six of eighteen. And the priest said to them, "Go in peace. The journey on which you go is look, look at these words under the eye of the Lord. Is it under the eye of the Lord? Yes. Is the Lord approving it? No. I don't think he is. And I think it is just the priest. It's his own." Um, words on what he thinks. So he gives this, tells them what they want to hear. And they go to these poor, unsuspecting people, and what do they do to them? Wipe them out, don't they? They wipe them out, they burn down the city, destroy everything, and then move in, rebuild the city, rename it, and they live there. That's where they live. And it's a telling thing at the end. They, they set up for themselves the carved image. And this is where, did you notice, we get the name of the priest? Did you figure that out? In verse 30, And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests of the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. That's where we get the name. That's his name is Jonathan, and we see his lineage. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made, as long as the, this is the irony, as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So the true house of God was at Shiloh, but they set it up down here at Dan. And again, it's that mixing of the pot, 
and doing what I want to do and doing it on my terms and what I think will serve, serve me. And that's where we are. This is where we are with, in those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Where is God in these chapters? Do we, where is he? He's what? He's still on the throne. Do we, do we see him working, though? Is he mentioned? How do you see him working? Does he speak? That's what I'm trying to get you to see. He doesn't speak here. He, there's no evidence of him speaking. There's no evidence. I mean, yes, we know, because we know the whole story, but he's still, he's, he's up here. He is up there um, on his throne, fully Yahweh, fully in control, sovereignly over these events. But what I want you to see is how silent he is. He is not speaking. He's, he's, he seems to be absent in this whole scenario. He seems to be incredibly absent. And instead, what we see, and that, this is what I want you to see, and the, and the goal of this is what does it mean that it's right in their own eyes? They're not, even consult, they're not really consulting him at all. How can he speak when they're not really even consulting him? Instead, what they're doing is everything we've talked about. They're trying to control their lives, set up their insurance, fashion God, take the attributes of him that they want, discard the ones they don't want, take the elements of worship that he has ordained that seem pleasing to them, mix those in, put them in, and use them the way I want to use them, the way I think is best going to serve me. It is a God of convenience. It's a means to an end not for God to work in my life and change me so that I can serve him, but for him to work for me. And that's the state of affairs at this juncture in Judges. Questions, comments? Now, is that Moses? The, like, Moses, mm -hmm. not some other Moses. So that's Moses' grandson, the of Levi? <sighs> Oh, yeah, well. This is where you get into, we don't know exactly, you may need to help me here, Jim, exactly what uh, the generations are. Yeah. Sometimes father could mean grandfather. Right. So we, 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 when we want to say, so you're talking about Moses had Gershom and Gershom had Jonathan. Yeah. And it could have been, well, actually, Gershom had Mehela um, Hulu. <laughs> so sometimes they would skip generation for purposes. But I would say chronologically, this would actually, for the most part, fit with a very normal and natural reading of the text. Right. The, like, for example, 14 generations that are used in between each in Matthew, when you get from Abraham to Jesus, those aren't father, father. Even though it says father, 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 it's more of the fatherly, the father, the father. This appears to be more of a general reading. Yes, Jonathan is Moses' grandson. But then, then you start getting into, and I wasn't going to bring it up, but since it's come up, the is this chronologically these chapters really at the beginning of the period of Judges, but the author has put them at, at the, the end. end. Yep. 
So that's, that's why. And, and that's one of the clues that this all, that this, what was happening here was probably happening at the beginning of the period of Judges, but the author for narrative purposes puts it at the end. So we don't, yeah, be careful reading Judges like it's this, then this, then this. Yeah. Because actually some of the, some of them are overlapping yeah. in the time period. It just freaks me out that Moses' grandkid could become a traveling Levite that quick. That means generation, that quick of a generational jump and they're already like, I'm for hire for the biggest. Well, his brother Aaron made a golden cat. Yes, he did. <laughs> it runs in the family. It runs, yeah. <laughs> Horrible idiots. Yes. But we're idiots as well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, we, all we all are. Let's be honest. Okay, let's take a break. Yes. yes. Did the people know that Jonathan was Moses' Probably. Probably. No reason to think that they didn't know. Mm-hmm. That I don't know. Did you go to Israel? Did you all go to Shiloh? Probably not. But you went to Dan. We went to that area. Yeah. Where the, where the um, archaeological ruins are in Dan. Okay. Okay. Take a break. Here's the good news, guys. The good news is I got to go to a funeral in Broken Arrow. Uh, and so you're going to get out virtually no matter what at about 11.15. So you can gather and talk. You'll be, you'll be out early. So... That's going to be a good thing. So I need to start. I need to start right now. So this, and I really do want to encourage you. Nancy brought it up. If not, I was going to bring it up. You need to Google 10 shekels and a shirt and listen to that sermon by Paris Reedhead, and it will uh, genuinely inspire you and shock you, challenge you, convict you about the dangers of making religion for your own purposes and, uh, and just how that kind of fundamentally destroys what God intended. Big picture, what I want to talk about today. In the study of hermeneutics, this becomes one of the most paramount questions that people need to ask. When we look at the biblical text, and we're trying to understand what the Bible is asking of us, is that text being descriptive or prescriptive for us today? Um, Listening to, and I hope she doesn't mind me using her as an example, but to Lynn back there, Lynn kept saying, She she would describe things, and then she would talk about Moses, and then she would talk a little bit about what God wanted, and then she would use the word we. So notice what she did. She's talking about God to Moses and what he did. And by Moses, I think she meant, if I can speak for her, I think she meant meant the Israelites, right? And then then the next step was, and then she said, and, and by the way, we, and I just want to ask, like, so here's what she did, okay? And we all do this. Here's what she did. She basically said this was not a description of what happened because then she applied it directly, okay? She applied it directly to us. So it's not, hey, here's what's going on. Just thought you should know. It's not Moses as descriptive. Here is what happened. But Moses as what? prescriptive. Here is what we should do. So do you get the difference? When you're looking at a biblical text, what you always have to ask is, is that text describing what happened or prescribing what should happen? Okay? 
and I remember the first time I, I learned this, um, I was a student at the time, and I just went, oh, wow, that's going to blow my mind forever, forever, because we take stories of Jesus' life. Jesus was baptized, therefore what? We should be baptized. I hear it all the time. Well, you know, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Really? Oh, okay. Jesus didn't have a house, therefore you shouldn't have a house. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Are you ready for this? And commanded his disciples to do likewise. Therefore, what? We should wash one another's feet. Right? Jesus made wine. Therefore, what? We should make wine. Right? Some of you are going, amen. Others are going, you're going to burn in hell. However that, however that works out. But truly, let me ask you a question. Jesus turning water into wine. Jesus producing wine descriptive or prescriptive, right? Now, by the way, I'm just, I'm telling you, have an answer. That's all I'm saying is you need to have an answer because what Lynn was describing, and we didn't get into particulars, but what Lynn did was she began to look at the story of Moses and she started saying, and we should be like that. And by the way, I would argue yes and no, that there are parts of Moses' story that are prescriptive and there are parts of Moses' story that are just descriptive. Okay, God almost killed Moses because he did not circumcise his sons. It's a very interesting story. God meets meets him. The burning bush happens. Moses goes back on his way to Egypt. God strikes him and almost kills him. And his wife goes, oh, this is because we didn't circumcise our kids. And she goes and she circumcises his boys. She takes their foreskin and puts it on Moses' feet which, by the way, may be a euphemism, and then he is revived. How many, of you, how many of you are going, you're making that up? No, that's a true biblical story, okay? Descriptive or prescriptive? <laughs> no, it's seriously. I mean, I'll tell you, that's, why do you think we had our boys circumcised early? Because I did not want to have to go through that, okay? So, Descriptive or prescriptive. Now, here's where it has, has real strong value. And I love, I, I thought Nancy was going to ask me why I was, I started laughing near the end and smiling near the end. It's because, and I was, I'm glad she didn't say anything to me because I would have just started talking and I didn't want to talk. Uh, I want to talk now. Um, but she asked this question. I'm going to lose my marker here. God speak. Which is a kind of a very, um, a very interesting thing in the text. It's a very interesting thing in the books around it. And it's a very, very interesting thing, um, I think, for us today. Okay? How many of us want to know what the word of the Lord is? How many want, want to consult the word of the Lord? How many of you would want to know God's will for your life? How many of you want to know, right? So we, we talk about that all the time. I hear people all the time, I wonder what God wants for me. I wonder if I should do this. I wonder if I should do that. Why isn't God speaking, right? How many of you have wondered why God hasn't been more clear to you? Okay, now, go to 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now, where does 1 Samuel 3 fit in in conjunction with this, with, with Judges? Still, it's the period of the Judges. So Samuel, I mean, you've got in the book's order, you've got Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. Okay, so many people consider Samuel to be the final judge. Okay, final judge, first prophet, you know, again, we have categories. God's just dealing with people, okay? And when you look at 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 
Isn't it like one? Okay, so 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, and this, by the way, is the calling of Samuel. And I love to remind people of this, because we read the Bible, or we think about the Bible, and we have this kind of a one-dimensional view, that literally beginning with Adam and ending with maybe the apostle John, that God was constantly talking to everybody all the time, constantly giving clear direction all the time. Well, tell me how many years is it from Adam to, to John? I don't know, 40, 50 maybe? Like, it's thousands of years. Like, thousands upon thousands of years. And how many people did he speak to? And how many people did he give this clear direction to? And why is God silent, right? So for those of you, and I, I'm, 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 I'm there, okay? I'm one of those guys that wonders why God doesn't already speak. And I want to give you an answer. One of the reasons why I do not believe God speaks, or may not, I, I, hear me, may, because God's going to do what God's going to do. One of the reasons why God may appear silent to us is because he's already spoken. Okay? What if that's the issue? So 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 actually says this. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to Yahweh under Eli, and the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. There were no frequent visions, which means there was a lot that was going on and a lot that was happening. And the Lord was not speaking the way he had. Or Notice how speaking and visions, there's something that is, that, that is closely connected there. And it's saying, and it was rare. Like they recognize, like what's about to happen to Samuel? By the way, I think one of the reasons why that's brought up in 1 Samuel 1 is because God's going to start talking. He's going to start, Samuel. And he, Samuel doesn't even know who it is. Is that you, Eli? No, it's not me. Goes back to bed. Samuel. Eli, what do you want? Okay, that's not me. Three times it happens, right? So God is about to do something that is out of place, that is uncharacteristic, not of God, but of the time, okay? It's not uncharacteristic of God. It might be uncharacteristic of the time. Now, by the way, why does he approach Samuel? This, I promise you, this has some hopefully real benefit to you, okay? But why does God speak to Samuel? Because he is going to tell him something Samuel could not have figured out on his own. Think about that. If God wants you to know or to do something, here is what I genuinely believe. God will not be unclear. I can find no example of the Bible where, I've seen examples where God is clear and the people don't get it. Okay? I've just never seen an example where God is unclear where God speaks, where God moves, and the people walk away. Now, I know the people literally don't get it, but when you look at the text, it's clear. Here is what I want from you. Here is what I desire of you. And so when God appears in 1 Samuel 3 and he speaks, he's telling Samuel what? I'm going to judge the house of Eli because they have been disobedient. And I need you to be aware of this, and I need you to know about this story. The most complicated thing I have in that whole encounter is that Samuel is going to end up having almost the exact same fate as Eli. I find that fascinating. Samuel's sons are just as wicked as Eli's sons, and that's one of the reasons why we get a king in 1 uh, Samuel 8. It's because Samuel's kids are just as bad as Eli's kids. So God speaks because, hey, by the way, you're not going to find this in the law. You're not going to find this in the past accounts. So let me tell you what's going to happen to Eli's kids. So prophetically, God speaks. But until God speaks, let's not forget 
that God, God speak is kind of the first thing. So, do not underestimate, ignore, or um, you need to use this as a, as a, as a, I would argue, like a primary reference in, term of, in terms of what God has already spoken. So where do you go to understand God's will for your life? Right? A lot of people, I don't know, I just kind of guess. Sometimes tea leaves, you know? Really? Like that's how you do it? Well, how else would we ever know what God wants? I don't know, he said a lot. You know that book you don't like reading? Or you pretend you're too busy for? Like there's a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah, but that really isn't for me. Hmm. Now listen, I get that, the, I get that it's complicated. We have to even wrestle with whether or not those things are descriptive or prescriptive. I get it. Okay? But here's, here's, here's what I want to do now. Now, understanding this and understanding Nancy's point that God is, and he is, God is silent here. I would argue, like, why is God silent? And what is one of the things that the judges, the, the writer of judges, is doing with this material? Like, what is something that he is actually trying to prove? And this is why it's good to read a book like in its context, and I don't just mean the verses and the chapters around it, but in its literary and historical context. And the literary and historical context of Judges, if I were to say to you, what is its, um, the kind of the, the context that is immediately surrounding it, what's going on in Israel's, in, in Israel's history? So take, first of all, when you think context, take a few steps back historically from Judges, and where are we? Tell me what's going on before the period of Judges. The conquest. Okay? What's going on in the conquest? Who, who directs the conquest? Joshua, by the voice of the Lord. God speaks in Joshua, by the way. He tells him to act. He tells him to do. Okay? Now that follows on the heels of what's going on before Judges. They're in the wilderness and they receive the law. What does the law say? Primarily. I am the Lord your God. Have no other gods before me. Particularly, here's what you do not want to do. You do not want to fashion yourself an image. Particularly, what you do not want to do is that you do not want to arrange like a priesthood outside of what I've done. This is why it's good to go back and remember, like in the numbers narrative, there are people that go, hey, how come you guys are the only ones that get to be priests? And God through Moses goes, okay, kill a bunch of people. They kill thousands of people. Over what? Over who gets to be priests. Who decides who's a priest? Answer, Yahweh. Guess who doesn't get to decide who's a priest? Someone with money. Okay, now, now all of a sudden does Judges 17 begin to kind of have a context? So think about how God has already spoken. I choose the priesthood, and the priesthood looks like this. And I will arrange for you, since I am the Lord your God, and you will not fashion with your hands an image that you will bow down and worship. Okay, so you need to be thinking, wow, ten commandments. So you come out of the period of the Torah, the law, and the covenantal faithfulness, into the period of the conquest, which is people should be working in their area, getting rid of the Canaanites to be faithful to what God has said. If not, they will be thorns and briars to you. And what Judges is doing, and I would argue this, this is where you got to be a little bit careful. If you had to ask me what Judges is doing mostly, it's this. Let me just kind of tell you what things are like. Don't you kind of get that feel? 
Let me tell you what it's like. And see, here's where I think we have a hard time with it. This is the reason why we use these judges as models. Right? How many of you have heard that the judges are models for us? How many of your kids have come home with some weird, it's got glitter, some cotton balls, a couple of popsicle sticks, right? And I'm serious. If you even let that thing in your car, I wonder why, okay? Now, my wife has a collection of them, right, from a carnival of idiots I call children that she still keeps because look how special they are and look how precious they are, okay? And hear me, I get the complexity of this. Right now as a staff, we're walking through a really good article about how not to teach your children um, Bible stories. And one of the things he says is, and this is what he says concerns him the most. His name is John Wells. Go to the Gospel Coalition and look at this, How Not to Teach Your Children Bible Stories. It's a great, great article. And what he says is, the thing that concerned him most is that when we teach our children Bible stories, thank you, Tony. When we teach our children Bible stories, um, he says it, it really does, not that it's all bad, but it really scares me because I learned all the same ideas from He-Man and from the Ninja Turtles about how to be nice and to play nice and to be kind. And, and he said, I just, I see very little difference between, these are his words, John Wells's words, I see very little difference between the power of Jesus and the, and the power of Grayskull, which is a He-Man image. But the power of Grayskull, right? He said, I just, I see very little difference. Okay? So what do we do? Okay? We have, historically, take, you need to be like Samson, strong like Samson. You've heard me talk about this, right? You need to be obedient, not like the first Jonah, but like the second Jonah, right? And you need to be courageous like David. And you need to, so when we go to these stories, instead of recognizing Samson as a description of the times, and this is why I'm indebted to Dr. Hall, who just kept pounding in our heads when we were doing Old Testament narratives in Hebrew, which was very complicated for me. He just kept saying, God is the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. And if you take anything other than, and by the way, he would even do this with people like Abraham and Moses. He just kept lifting it. And I just, I just, Abraham, he's awesome. There's nobody in the world that has ever had faith like, really? Like, no, God. So the stories of the Bible, and particularly Judges, where we, again, I'm not even, I think we just need to make sure, and by the way, our kids' department's doing a phenomenal job trying to make sure that they, your kids don't go home with just moralistic thoughts, theories on how to be nicer kids, but power of the gospel type thing. We're doing a thing right now with our kids called the Gospel Project, so that kids are learning the deep truths, not just adding biblical ideas to their repertoire. Why? Because we don't know what to do with the judges. So here's, here's, here's kind of what the, the thought I want to leave with you. Um, I think what judges is doing for us is saying, in light of Torah, which we already know, the law, okay? And in light of kind of the, 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 the conquest And the, the book of Judges isn't doing this, but then because the Bible is a whole, we begin to look on the other side, and the establishment of Israel as a kingdom, okay, with future kings and prophets, okay, that's what 1 Samuel begins to describe. During this period of the Judges, I think Judges is not so much doing this, okay, 
as much as it is doing this, and, and, and I think this is what it is, is asking people. So you tell me how they're doing. Let me kind of tell you a story, and you tell me how they're doing. Okay, there, there is this, this family, and uh, man, he's doing really, really well. Got like a 32 on his ACT. Man, just really, really excited about his future. How, how are they doing? Well, can you tell me more? Sure, I'll tell you more. Like, his dad worked really, really hard as kind of a second-generation person from Ireland. And I just continue to tell this story, and, and, and you're what? You're taking these facts, and you're kind of linking them together, and I'm giving you a picture of what's going on. If I were to say to you, hey, just describe for me what's going on right now in America. How are things going? You're going to tell me a story. Well, here's what's going on politically. Here's what's going on socially. There's a, there's a book that you need to probably also take a look at describing, particularly the book is focusing on our young girls who are becoming increasingly involved, okay, with, um, and, and not viewing, but being like themselves porn stars. Um, it's called Spring Break. Have you heard about it? No, I'm not kidding. And so this book is describing like the, just the high levels of debauchery that exist in our culture today. And it's written, uh, this article is actually written by a young teenage girl who just feels completely out of place in this culture now. And one of the things she actually says is, if only there was a way for parents to know what their daughters were struggling with. And the whole book that was written from from a non-Christian perspective, but just where our teenage girls are particularly right now, okay? Um, And I, I, I know of a lot of girls in our town that are involved in stuff like this, okay? And the girl who writes the article actually says, oh, there is a way to know, but parents don't look at it. It's actually called, it's social media that's driving a lot of this. One of the number one sources for pornography for, for America, do you know what it is? Twitter. So that's where it's coming in. How many of you know what Twitter is, right? How many of you go, yeah, that's pornography? So here's what's interesting, is that, we know how to, to, in essence, right, and this is Jesus will make this statement. Do you know how to interpret the times? Do you know how to interpret the times, the times in which you live? How many of you watch TV and watch our culture and go, wow, we're pretty broken. We're pretty, we're pretty messed up, right? And then here's another thing. I'll tell you, this, this so uh, scares me sometimes. Matt Chandler, I'll give him the credit. He says it. It really concerns him when he laughs and giggles and um, finds things funny, mostly on television shows, that are things that Jesus died for. But it's just, <laughs> it's just so funny, you know? Right? Like these guys go to Vegas and uh, they get drunk and yeah, there's a couple of hookers that kind of come. But I mean, I'm not kidding. This one guy, he is so funny. You know, I mean, I, 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 I've always tried to be an honest person. I was deeply conflicted last night at a mangent. You know what that is? Yeah, our high school puts it on. It's when a bunch of young men um, dress up in, like, skimpy shorts and act sexually provocative ways. And they, for, for, wait, 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 wait. We're doing it for the Seville Center. So before you get upset. Yeah, the high school. So we're, and, they, and they're, they're going to raise, hear me, we're doing it for a good reason, okay? Like literally, last year they raised like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. And, you know, it's easy for me to say how terrible it is because 
My son was in it. And he won the swimsuit portion of the competition. <laughs> now, and it doesn't make me feel any better that it was actually like our adopted son from Mexico. It doesn't make me feel any better at all. And I'm sitting there, and, and, and one, of the reasons, one of the reasons why I was making frustrating comments to my wife and friends around me is because I was kind of like embarrassed and trying to justify it and going, wow, this is, like, I want, no wonder so many young men, like, wrestle with their sexuality, right? They're doing it in front of hundreds of people for, for Henry, can I just tell you, it's for, do you know the Seville Center? Like, this is for a good cause. And I guess maybe because I have this on my mind, I'm thinking to myself, wow, um, is, is there something broken in our culture? And the answer is what? Yeah. Have you ever watched The Voice? Yeah. Is there something broken in our culture? Have you ever watched The Office? Is there something broken in our culture? Have you ever watched Seinfeld? Yeah. Is there something broken in our culture? <laughs> and I'm telling you, I'm not kidding. Like, I, I would have rather just not taught today. Because this becomes like a description of what's going on in our culture. And, and the easiest thing for me to think about doing is to just run from it. Okay? Let, well, let's just run from it. Let's become like the Amish. It doesn't, like the problem's in me. So I'll just, I'll bring the problem with me wherever I go. Is that not true? So notice how much, and this is why I want you to hear this. Notice how much in 17, 18, and 19, it's just telling a story. Like, there really isn't any kind of, and look how bad it is. And then the Lord spoke from on high. It, no, it's just going, well, this guy does this, and then this person comes along and says, well, why? And, and, and here's what creeps me out about this, was when I am reading this story, I'm going, yeah, that makes sense. Like, what is it better? Is it better for you to be a priest over a family or a priest over a tribe? Your answer? A tribe. Like, wouldn't it be good for you to get this silver and to get this shirt? Like, isn't that a good thing? Well, yeah, it's a good thing. How could it be a bad thing, right? And then they do this. Let's see what God does. And in the account, when the Danites come and they take him and they ask him what's going to happen, he goes, oh, God's going to look favorably on this. God's eye is on us, okay? And then they go about their business. What happens? Success or failure? Success. They win. So you tell me whether or not that's a sign that God works on this. Correct? And, and by the way, now, and, and what is the text saying? Is it prescribing or describing? It's, it's not prescribing, it's describing. And that's why I think in this section, more than any other section, I didn't confirm this, but it appears to be in more than any other section, you get this refrain at the start of 18, at the start of 19, and I believe at the end of 17, if I remember the three places. And what does it say? In this day, Israel had no king, and particularly the end of 17, and what? And each person did as they saw fit. This is actually like a section written, kind of, to shame Israel. Like you just... Right now, we should all just swallow hard, be embarrassed, go home and hang our heads, right? A friend of mine who happened to be there last night, and it wasn't all bad, by the way. Um, it's just, it, I get that it's even complicated. It just, 
I don't know. I got a lot of praying to do. I got a lot of thinking to do. I don't, I'm not a protest guy. I am a mocker. Um, hopefully it's biblical. Um, I'm a little sarcastic. I'm, I'm willing to throw myself under the bus in terms of what that looks like. I don't know what the answer is. I don't want to run away, and I don't want to be a part of it. So I'm, I'm trying to figure this out, right? Like this is, you know, and, and, and the, the sad part is it's so easy for me to see sexually wrong, but when it comes to other parts of wrong, then it's just not as easy. Okay, so there are other parts of wrong that just kind of can seduce us too, Right? So as we look at this text, what it's doing is it's going, so here is what's going on in this time. There is this guy named Micah, and there's this, this he steals this, and then his mom makes. Is that good or bad? And the answer is, that's terrible. And then he does this, and by the way, it works out. Is that good or bad? And you're, you, you should walk away going what? Like, that's really, really bad. Like, that's really, really sad. And what I love about this section in Scripture is it genuinely orients me, okay, as it describes, it orients me to look back at to where God has already spoken and where God will in the future speak so that I can understand what's going on now. Because if not, I'm just going to be like everybody else that is trying to measure what's going on by the wind, knocking on wood, right? I'm not saying anything that could jinx me. I'm trying to follow along all of the same patterns as here. But the problem is, is that like God has already spoken. Don't make yourself an idol. So when you hear, man, they made themselves idols and then they really started doing well, you're like, that's terrible. Man, they're doing well. How will they ever know that this is wrong? Instead of going, ah, they're doing well. Maybe it's okay. Could that ever creep into us? See, I got this one friend and um, he's a homosexual. But the truth is, he is so nice. Like, he, he really is. And I mean, I mean, he is just like us. He is just like us. Oh, oh, okay. Well, if he's just like us, well, then what? Then that's okay. Yeah, like this, this one friend of mine, he, he left his spouse. and you know, he, but, but I'll tell you, like his new marriage, God is just blessing it. Like, you know, I mean, I, I know it was wrong in terms of how it started, but man, I'll tell you, just who I'm just so glad that. Right? Yeah. Like, God, and hear me. God can redeem broken situations. So don't read too much into anything that I'm saying. But how many of us look at circumstances and then from those circumstances judge instead of what the Lord has already spoken? Now, God's already commented on that. That's why he doesn't need to tell you, like, whether or not you falling in love with your secretary um, is, like, a good thing. or a, He's already spoken. What, do you, what was he going to tell you? He's already told you. Right? And so now when, and this was, this was probably one of the greatest gifts that my father gave me, is I love to tell my dad things. Because I was so excited about him. And my dad would just look at me. And he would take the thing that I said and how I got excited about it or sad about it. And my dad used those moments. Um, maybe you could say he was a little over the top, which, yes, he was. Um, but we did someday, and I'll look, oh, I miss him. And so it'll, be, it'll work out. Uh, when, I, when I look at all the things that my dad said, and I got all excited about it, he, like the book of Judges, would use my excitement or my frustration or my depression, and he used that to evaluate whether or not I understood how to interpret the events around me. Does that make sense? 
because God has already spoken. So the fact that you're really impressed by, that was a big thing. Dad, be, my dad would always say, be careful what impresses you. Well, Dad, you don't understand. We got this priest, and we're gonna, we, 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 we took over these cities. And my dad would go, wow, you got a what? And he has a what? He has an idol? Wow. All of that's, no, you don't understand. I kept saying that to him all the time. But, Dad, you don't understand. Like, what you don't understand is I think it's working. And my dad would go, oh, that's probably even worse. <laughs> Truly. Like, if it's working and it's wrong, then that's probably worse. How do we know to do that? Hear me. It is reading the judges and go, and I want, I want to challenge you to go back and read the judges and, like, circle the areas where the commentator, the writer of judges, doesn't say, wow, and that is stupid. But you can go back and look at it, and you can go, wow, that is, that is just, that's evil. Man, making an idol and making an ephod and buying a priest, that's just evil. Um, i got like two minutes for thoughts, and then I want to end with uh, hopefully something even a little more, uh, I don't know, lively. That, that, that's heavy, isn't it? It's heavy on me. It's really heavy on me. But thoughts? I'm assuming you're having some, at least, even though you don't want to share them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, honestly, going back, I mean, this is, huh, it's funny that I, I never really thought about that when I was kind of preparing this, but, you know, um, I, I like looking back at, uh, anyway, we, we got to guard against being judgmental, but we need to make right judgments. You see, you see the danger we're in? So we can't become judgmental. I can't become, oh, yeah, like I'm better than. No, 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 no. You don't understand. By grace, we've all been saved through faith. And so I just, nobody gets, let, let none of us ever get on a high horse. I can't believe Jim allowed that. I would never let my kids, I'll wait till they're a senior, I promise you. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I mean let's, let's see. You want to do this? We can do this. And by the time we're all done, we'll all just kind of want to sit in a corner. Okay, so it's, it's deep, and that's why I kind of always have always felt as a, as a pastor and as a family, we just got to keep the truth in front of us and let God be the redemptive agent in it. You know, so as we work through this, I, I think it's actually good to say, hey, by the way, you know, Brenda, I was kind of looking at your Facebook page, and wow, there's just a lot of idolatry on that. What, it's just my son. Yeah, he's the idol. Right? Like, just the way that you talk about it and the way that you... You know, I mean, one of the best ways for us to know how to care for our people at the church, actually, is by kind of just keeping up and kind of following, like on Facebook. And it's almost creepy the number of times we can say, yeah, I guess I'm really not too surprised that she kind of left him. I could just kind of tell, like, the posts were this, and then she started doing that. It's really kind of sad. Kind of saw it coming. So there is depiction. So Facebook and, and those social media situations seem to be some of the most telling. Phyllis, I think you had your hand up. God, God doesn't change. Mm-hmm. God's mm-hmm. Yeah. And so here's the, here's the part that gets complicated. I have five minutes. Here's the part that gets complicated. Is the, so when we look at it, so then where do we go? Right? Because here's what happens. Lynn, or, uh, uh, Nancy wrote the word syncretism. Right? 
And so this is the part where I want to go, yeah, syncretism. That's the problem. We just can't become synchristic. We can't take the world and influence our ways of worship, kind of like the way like rock music has influenced us and how our worship services look more like concerts, right? Whereas 200 years ago, they looked more like their concerts. And by the way, that's true. So we worship the way that they did in the 1700s and then the way that they did in our culture. In the 1800s, in Africa, they worship like they do everything. I mean, so, so where do we go, right? Like, again, I, so where do I go? And this is where I believe, and that's why I laughed when you made the statement. Here's the good news. Like, God has already spoken. Like, God is already clear enough. And so what I, I would like you to just think about, and I want you to think about this for your, for your marriage. I want you to think about this for like your family. Like if I were to just write down the story of your family, like Judges 17, 18, and 19. I'm just, I just want to describe it. Hear me, let's not, let's not just do commentary. Let's just write biography. Let's talk about like what's going on in your life. Let's talk about the, the places that we go and the things that we do and the conversations that we have and how we use our... Let's just, let's just write it down. Write down what Jim and Andrea do and how they, where they went and how they spent their money. That's why I love the statement that made me throw up in graduate school when a professor looked at me and said, just give me your checkbook and your day timer and I'll tell you your priorities. Okay? So here's the good news is that you have a story just like this one. And, and by the way, the, the land around us has no king, and each American does as he saw fit. So we can just kind of write the story of Jim and Andrea Johnson, and da 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 And then we have what God has already spoken. And by the way, here's where I would tell you, um, I could have gone here a lot, but I don't have the time. Um, one of the things that I would caution you against, and this is why the we is not this, it's actually Moses, Israel, then Jesus, then we. Okay? So I would, I would even argue before you go, yeah, look at the syncretism and the way that we worship and the way that we, and we need to go back here. No, 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 no. We need to go back here. We need to go back to what Jesus has said. So if you want to, if you want, this is where you'd be very careful syncretism is also trying to go back and recreate this, right? The standard for us, the standard for this text is the Mosaic law. Do you understand that? Okay. But by the way, you get the answers to these questions wrong if you try to understand us in light of the Mosaic law, right? That, that would be equally wrong. Because why? Through Christ, Jesus Christ has given us this new paradigm. So the paradigm that you, now are, you and I are now going to pit our description of our lives fits here in this context. And I'll tell you, one of the best things that has ever happened to me is I just kind of thinking about, okay, so if, my, if, if we told the story of my life and the things that Jim and Andrea did, and we told it truthfully, what areas do you circle? And you go, well, like, wow, that sure wasn't in line with what Jesus said. Well, that sure wasn't in line with what Jesus said. Good news is, now that was... And then this was, most of that's Andrea, now that I think of it, but, <laughs> but think about that. Think about your life and how you can, again, do you need God to speak to you? Hey, listen, if he wants to, God, I, I wish he would talk more to me. I really do. But the one thing I've learned is I can go back and find a lot of what he has already told me. 
seek after the kingdom of heaven. All these things like your money and your food and your clothes, they'll be added to you. God knows how to close the field and put things on birds and feed them. And he knows how to take care of you. Oh, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Oh, okay. Like I guarantee you, there's a whole lot that God has already spoken on. Okay? And so when you start thinking about syncretism and you start, because I know a lot of preachers that look at the judges and they make way too much out of it. So here's my final thought. It's interesting. Um, Canada has a very similar idea. Uh, we, we don't quite use the, our country was founded on Christian values. We don't quite have that, but a little bit. I think we borrow it from you guys because it's really not true about us. But I think we borrow a lot of that mentality. And so we have a lot of this. And that is why God blessed us. This is where I think it creeps into American church, right? Is that when you go back, yeah, God gave us this rich land and God gave us all these things. Why? Because we founded this country on Christian values. Why did God put so much oil in Saudi Arabia? Can someone explain that to me? Like, why? Can someone explain that to me? Now, hear me. I am not saying that God did. I I have no idea. Just be really careful. It's a little bit of the difference between, hey, God, bless America. You see, get the tone in that that's wrong? Instead of pleading, God, like, bless America. With you. Man, I'm, I'm grateful for where I live. I mean, there's not another place in the world I'd rather live. Really, unbelievably grateful. But I got to be careful that I don't worship this great country that uses God to make it great. But I truly recognize this is about him in the world. Because if not, you're just kind of confused. Huh, so why does, why does, I really do, I ask myself this question all the time. Why does God give Saudi Arabia oil? Like so much that they just are so rich. You know what their answer is, by the way? Is because Allah is good. You explain that one to me. Actually, you know, here's the good part. I don't need to explain it to you. God has already spoken. Amen? I I really do. I'm going to challenge you. Go back and think of your story and compare it to the words of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your time uh, that you've given us and the time to reflect on this story. And Father, even as chapter 20 comes, what we see is a nation falling apart. Um, A woman raped, cut to pieces, sent throughout. And uh, 17, 18, 19 make incredible sense when we just see the decay and the debauchery that follows it. And so, God, I think sometimes we can just look at our stories and just think, oh, I don't think anything's going wrong and fail to realize that when we build houses on sand, <laughs> there's nothing but, but destruction ahead. And, God, the fact is you've given us the ultimate truth that one day we will meet you and there'll be no place to hide. And, therefore, for those of us that know, I believe everybody in this room knows, Jesus, may we build on him and be faithful to him and be humbled by him Um, Father, give me wisdom to know how to even think about and talk about what I saw last night. Free me from uh, arrogance, pride, and sarcasm alone. Father, may I love my community enough to be able to judge it without ever being judgmental. Um, It's for your name and for your glory I think about these things. I say these things. Amen.